Well, good morning. Like the rest of the guys that have already gotten up here, it's an honor uh, to be here. This is one of the favorite uh, conferences that I get a chance to go to and to do throughout the whole year. I enjoy just getting a chance to be here and talk about the faithfulness of our God. I've loved this idea from the first year that we did it. Uh, two years ago now, this is the third one, just uh, getting a chance to sit here with brothers who have the same heart that I do, those of us that just labor in obscurity and want to do what God has called us to do. So it is an honor to be here in front of you, and I did just want to express my gratitude to you all for being able to take time out to be here and for everybody that helped to put this thing on. So um, if you would, as I talk about pastoral perseverance today, I would love for you all to turn to Psalm 124. Um, And as you turn there, once you get it, why don't you just stand up? And we're all going to stand up as I um, read. So, Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say. If the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, Then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Blessed be the Lord who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that the only reason that we can be here and talk about uh, the ability to persevere as pastors is because of your mighty hand to save, Father. You are a preserver and we are yours. So for those of us that feel like we're at the end of our rope, would you remind us that you're holding on to the other end of it, Father? Would you remind us that even if we fall off, uh, your hands are there to catch us. So if you have us, that's the most important thing here. Help us to reflect not on the firmness of our grip, but the firmness of yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you all to take your seats. Uh, New beginnings don't always erase frustrations. Sometimes new beginnings replace frustration. New beginnings don't always erase frustration. Sometimes they replace. Um, I'm reminded of um, uh, when I was a kid, uh, we had a Nintendo. So 30 years ago, you know, we got the first joint with Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. That was the first thing that came through. And uh, we used to uh, be frustrated because me and my brothers and cousins would play it all the time. But once you, like, died, uh, I'm the third of five kids, and I've got a lot of family. So it took a long time before the controller came back to me. So we instituted this thing called a reset turn, right? And so what that means is on the front of the box, there's a magical button called the reset button. So right before Mario or Luigi are getting ready to plunge um, to an awful, awful death, uh, you had the ability to press 
the reset button, and you could press it, and what it would do is it would wipe away the past. It was as if none of the hardships that you experienced as you were trying to save the princess were real, and you could start over and see the mistake that you made and not make that same mistake. And it provided us a sense of hope, uh, but what we quickly find out was that the reset button uh, promised a future that it didn't really provide. Because though we erased or forgot about the past mistakes that we made, as we played, we fell into a, a new pitfall. There was always another level that we couldn't beat. Regardless of how much trouble we escaped, there was always more trouble that we couldn't get past. And I feel like such is the conundrum that we find ourselves in as pastors, uh, that when we look to the future for our hope, uh, we kind of find ourselves saying, all right, if only I could get to this next thing, then things will be better. But then we get to that next thing and we find that the trouble that we tried to forget about um, has found us. I think in trying to spend so much time looking to the future for our hope and forgetting the past pain, uh, when we try to forget the past because of the pain of the past, we miss out on remembering something that's important with the past. When we throw away the past, I think we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we don't just forget past pain, but we forget the past faithfulness of God. I feel like we're a dangerous combination of eager and forgetful. I think we're eager. We look forward. We're anxious to start over. We find ourselves in hard times, and we're eager to, when will things be normal again? And we hope that it'll come with the next iteration, the time that we come back from vacation, a new job, a new year, a new church, a new conference. Sometimes we live lives as if the conferences that we go to are kind of these perforated lines where this day is going to mark this spot where we can tear off all the old and step into the new. And eagerness is fine, but it becomes incredibly dangerous when it's prepared or when it's paired with forgetfulness. And here's what I mean by that. When we place our hope in the future that things will somehow be better or we won't find the same trouble, we forget a few things. And the thing that we namely forget is this, is that good things don't last forever. Every new beginning sets the stage for a potential painful ending. Every hope for gain really sets the stage for a threat of a new loss. Every new love that we step into comes with a set of knives that's eventually going to stab us in the heart. Fresh starts don't erase frustrations. Sometimes they replace them. And I think here's one of the worst consequences of seeking to forget the past and only look to the future for our hope. Uh, we're always looking, but we're never really progressing. We're always searching, but we're never settled. We're filled with tons of excitement about the new thing that is on its way, and then when we get it, we feel that it's not all, that it's cracked up. 
that excitement for new beginnings evaporates quicker than sweat on summer sidewalks. As soon as it hits, it's gone. I think the biggest problem with all of this is that when we're always searching for something new, what we end up starting to miss out on is experiencing the goodness of God. Now, what I didn't say is knowing the goodness of God or being able to explain the goodness of God. We're pastors, so we do that well. I mean experiencing it. And what you find in Scripture is everywhere that people experience the goodness of God, it's followed by this robust, uncoerced, unhindered, unhinged praise. So they cross the Red Sea, and it's this robust song. And we have to sit back and ask ourselves, is that what I'm experiencing of God? Or do you find yourself in a place where you're very overwhelmed by life and underwhelmed by God? If that's the case, it's going to make it incredibly hard to persevere and hold on. So knowing what's in store for us when we get home, knowing that we have the type of lives where one call can change everything about the course of your day, and one call often does change everything about the course of your day, what's the secret to moving forward and making progress? How do we get the courage to move forward? Well, that's why we turn to Psalm 124, Um, And I'm back in the psalm of ascent, like Juan did a great job, so I don't have to go through and set all that context. This was the soundtrack of folks as they were on their way to worship God. These were the songs that were playing in their AirPods. And as they're anticipating the great worship that they are preparing to do for this great God and how he is going to guide them towards what I love about this psalm is that He doesn't spend his time looking forward, but he looks backwards. We spend so much time on insight, trying to figure out what God is trying to do with all these moving pieces in our life, when instead I think we should spend more time on hindsight, looking at what God has done in the past. That's what he does here. And so if I could couch just kind of my main point In a sentence, it's going to be this. Fellas, ladies, the courage to move forward comes from the conviction to look backwards. The courage to move forward comes from the conviction, the custom, the habit of constantly looking backwards over our shoulders to the faithfulness of God. Let's start here in verse 1. I love how he starts in verse 1 and he just helps us see like he says, hey, I need your help. This is for the congregation. I need cooperation. And he says this, if the Lord had not been on our side, and then he kind of stops. He doesn't complete the thought. Before he's getting ready to go into this song, he says, if the Lord had not been on our side, and then he says, let Israel say, So verse 1 is he kind of starts this and he's like, hey, y'all know this tune. Sing along. 
Let's make sure that everybody raises their voice. Commonality unites people, right? There's nothing like finding somebody that you don't know and you start to talk about an obscure band or song that nobody else knows and you start to sing that tune and they jump in, that they know that song, that there's something about being able to be paired up with folks where you start to sing this song and you think of it as your song and they say, well, that's my song as well. And you say, well, this is our song. It's nothing like, like we're all here in a room right now because we're pastors or we want to be or we are married to pastors and we love them and we want them to be joyful and we know the unique struggles that come with that. What I love about this conference is as we start to talk about the pitfalls and the struggles, I think that all of us as pastors of smaller to medium-sized churches may deal with the same thing. So I know that there are problems that could come with my church is just too big and I don't know what I'm going to do with all these people. I don't imagine that's a problem that a bunch of us in here have. I know there's a problem that comes with, man, we just have too much money and we don't know how to spend it all. I don't imagine that that's what you're facing. There are problems that come with prosperity and some folks face that But everybody goes through adversity and hard times, and I imagine that's what's here, and that's what links us up, that as you sit and talk and compare stories, you can say, me too, me too, me too. And you find that there's nothing more comforting than being in a room sometimes with people that have the same problems as you. But what he starts off and says here, no, no, listen. There's nothing like being in a room with a bunch of people that have the same God as you. Now, if the Lord had not been on our side, let let all of us say this is a psalm for all of us. And so for this, right, the we've been here, we'll be here for maybe a day and a half. We have to remind ourselves that, you know, we are around our people. This is our psalm. And if this is the truth, then let's act like it. Are you happy to gather with the saints, not just here, but back home? Are you humbled to gather with the saints? If you are and you read this, you remember that even though you are the preacher or the pastor, there's two things that we see here. One, this song right here is not a solo. It is a song that's meant to have a hundred-part harmony. That it doesn't just need to be proclaimed from the pulpit or in the pews. This is the constant song in the hallways. And we constantly draw folks in. This is not a solo. And I want you to know, Pastor, um, you're not the lead singer. So avoid the temptation to feel like you're the only one that goes through this or has the background or has the type of life that would cause you to rejoice in this psalm. This is something for all of us. And this is sometimes the benefit of times like this, but I think the danger of times like this is that we can find ourselves in a room of folks 
who sympathize with us exactly how we need it, and it's refreshing, but then we think and we go back home, and it's like, now I've got to go back home to people that don't really get me. And then what takes place is that you start to find out um, that when you pull away from community, the community that God has blessed you with, because you think that they don't get you, um, it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't expect anything from anybody else that's not a pastor, so you don't ask them for anything, and you get exactly what you ask for, nothing. But if you know that you're not the lead singer, and you say, I'm just going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to start this song, and I'm going to share, and I'm going to be vulnerable the way that Juan was from the stage, the way that Ronnie was from the stage with folks that find themselves in the church, what you'll quickly find out is that people are eager to sing along. And as they sing along, you find out that sometimes your story is the catalyst to help other people share. That as we face the future and persevere, we have to remind ourselves that we're sheep just like them and we do so together. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say this is this is a chorus it is not a solo but then he goes on and after he calls folks to get in uh, he gets into the meat of the song Um, and there is good news and there's bad news so I'm going to start off with uh, the bad news first and the bad news is this bad things happen bad things will happen Here's the good news. Although bad things happen, the worst hasn't. Here's what I mean by that. You and I have to learn what it is to judge God's favor by the right measurements. We do not judge God's love or God's blessing by the absence of conflict in our life. We judge God's love by the outcome of the conflicts in our life. If you use the wrong measurements, you're always going to come to the wrong conclusions about God's love. It would be like trying to get a custom suit made, and when somebody asks you for your measurements, you give them your weight, and they make a suit, and you're upset because it doesn't fit. 250 pounds doesn't really say anything about how a suit can be made. I'm 230 pounds. I think I wear it quite nice. If Joe Thorne was 230 pounds, it would be a completely different suit. The measurements are important. How do we measure God's love? So let me just sit in this bad news. Because the only thing worse, I think, than real pain um, is false hope, right? False hope is like waiting in the rain for a bus that's not coming. So what I don't want to do is to say your life will be better. You may not go through the pain that you've gone through. The worst is behind you. Bad things happen, and they will happen. And so in this psalm, I think there's three characteristics that we see of conflict that will be true of your pastorate if you decide to remain. And that's this conflict. One is 
inevitable. Look here at verse 2. It says, if the Lord had not been on our side, uh, he goes on to say, when people attacked us, when people attacked us, it is as dependable as the sunrise. It is as unchangeable as the law of gravity. It's not an if. It is a when. 2019 and 2020 will not be free of conflict. Look, even if you resolve to do better, not make the same mistakes that you made in the past, to humble yourselves, to apologize when things go wrong, to not hold a grudge against anybody, even if you resolve to do that and do it perfectly, you won't escape conflict because you live in a world where the people that you serve aren't making the same resolutions that you do. And even if they do, they may not keep them. Conflict is inevitable. It's going to find you. You can try to get in a room and close the blinds all you want to, but you know, like anybody that's trying to escape a day of work and try to sleep in, that eventually that sunlight is going to creep through one of the cracks of the blinds and pinch you on the cheek and get you up. You cannot run away from conflict. It is inevitable. Not only is it inevitable, it's intense. Look here at verse 3, right? Then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. That phrase right there is used... uh, You all know the feeling of being so hungry that when the food comes, you don't even waste time chewing. You devour it. So hungry that you're like, I know there's bones in this salmon, but I don't want to pick them all out. I'm just going to swallow it whole and deal with the consequences on the back end. You know what it's like to be that hungry and that angry. And he's saying, look, these people that are coming against me, it feels so intense. We've been in ministry, and you know just the things that come with the loss of a loved one, how intense that feels, that it could swallow you alive. Marital conflict, how it can swallow you alive. Relational struggles, infertility, the loss of a loved one. There's so many things that can come that there's no way to guard for it. It can swallow us alive. How many of y'all have already had a year like that already? Not only is it inevitable and intense, but it's all-inclusive. Look here at verse 2 through 5, right? If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive, and look at the metaphors that he'll use. And they're burning anger against us, right? Fire, burning anger. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Um, Have you ever talked to somebody that had their house burned down? What you find out is that Their house can burn down and the fire can destroy lots of stuff. But what really destroys everything in the house is not the fire. It's the water that they use to put out that fire. And so you just kind of see, like, man, it comes from all sides, right? Any one of those things on the list that I talked about, the marital struggles, the loss of a loved one, the infertility, all that... 
Any one of those is enough to swallow you alive. But what you find out as a pastor, what we find out is that we don't have the luxury of just one of those things. Sometimes it feels like all of those things, right? It's not or, it's and. Because even if it doesn't take place in your life, it takes place in somebody else's life in the church that you have to to walk through. So what 2015 looked like for me four and a half years ago before we're getting ready to plant this this church is six weeks before the church starts, my brother dies. Four days before he dies, my wife and I, who have battled infertility for the past 12 years, find out that our fourth adoption try in the course of the past year failed. In the life of our church, I wasn't the only one to lose somebody. Every like six weeks for those first six months in the life of a church full of 20-something, somebody's mother, father, uncle, friend died. And we baptized a church member in October of our first year, and the next February we buried her. All the while, depression sets in. The loss of friendships is motives are picked apart because we feel led to be called to plant a a church and the church that we're at sends us five miles up the road and now people that I know and trusted are picking apart my motives for trying to plant this church and so then we lose friendships and then in the midst of all of this I'm trying to work through all of this And I don't know how in my depression and grief to be able to do all of this, care for a church and care for my wife well, so marital struggles start to take place. And then you start to talk about the increased racial tensions that take place in the world. And you see all of it from all sides. There's no way to guard it. And you're... Sitting out there and engaged right now because my story's not unique. Because you have or you've been through some time where you could say, yeah, things piled and piled and piled and piled and piled. It comes at us from all sides. And if that's not enough, it's not just that it comes at us from all sides. It comes at us from inside as well, too. It's not like we're just attacked by what's outside, but then we're convicted by what's inside. So then I don't know if it's laziness or depression that makes it harder for me to prepare my sermons. All I know is that the last one was awful. And then... I work real hard to make sure that the next one's not that bad that the, and the next one is great. And then like Henry Martin, I'll say men frequently admire me and I'm pleased, but I abhor the pleasure that I feel. And as time goes on, you just kind of feel like Man, I still haven't hit the bottom of discovering the sinfulness on the inside of me. So trouble is intense. It's inevitable. It's going to find you. 
And it's going to find you from all sides. There's no way to guard against it. So the bad news is you cannot escape from trouble. You can't run from it any more than a dog can run from his tail. And you say, John, that's not very encouraging. And you say, John, that's why I want to forget about the past and look forward. Because the more I think about all that stuff, the angrier that I get that God had allowed it to take place. But I said that I had good news as well. The bad news is that bad things can happen. They will happen. They do happen. But the good news is this, that even though bad things happen, the godly won't be consumed by it. Psalm 124, uh, one of the first things that I learned when it came to studying the Bible is that when you read a text, one of the first ways that you can kind of make sense of what goes on here is look for repeated words and phrases. There's two phrases that are repeated four times here. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, right? That's clear. But in verses 3 through 5, there's this one phrase that's repeated four times. And do you know what that phrase is? Would have. Would have. If the Lord hadn't been on our side when the people attacked us, then they would have swallowed us alive. Verse 4, the water would have engulfed us. The torrents would have swept us. The raging water would have swept over us. Do you know what he's doing? He's reflecting on the past, and he's creating this hypothetical, fictional account of the worst-case scenario, what would have gone on had God not been on our side. And do you know what it does as he starts to look to the past? He's grateful for what God has done for him. He is not focusing on the conflict or judging God's goodness by the absence of the conflict that comes, but by the outcome of it. And this is how God has always revealed himself. So you think of Exodus 3, Moses walks... And what catches his eye? Not just a bush that's on fire, but he's saying it's on fire. Fire should consume this. But because the presence of God is in this bush, fire comes, but the bush is not consumed, which is a symbol and a hallmark of what it's always like with God's people. Fire comes, but it's not consumed. Trouble comes, conflict comes, but we're not consumed. If he hadn't been on our side, then this is what would take place. But we praise God because he is on our side. And what he does here is he measures God's love and the, not by the good things that he's withheld, but by the bad things that he's withheld. So we measure God's love not by the blessings that have been distributed, but by the bullets that have been dodged because he pushed us out of the way. And that's just a different way, I think, for you and I to think about the faithfulness of God. I'm grateful for the Christmas spirit, and we are reminded just each year at that time, like, what God has done, and that, man, God didn't withhold 
anything from us. And he gave us his son, but I think sometimes being reminded of the fact that God gave us everything in his son blinds us to the fact that God owes us absolutely nothing. When we think about God's goodness, just in terms of the good that he gives, here's what we start to do. We start to compare ourselves to other people and complain when we feel like God has withheld good things from us. We covet. I'm just as faithful as them. Why don't I have a wife, or at least a wife like this? I'm just as hardworking as them. Why don't I have a platform? Or at least a platform like this. Why don't I have kids or kids like theirs? Why don't I have their gifts? And the list goes on and on and on. And we start to say, why me? As we think about what it is that we want and we forget. We forget the fact that God withholds nothing good from those that he loves. That God is a sun and a shield and he grants favor and honor, and he doesn't withhold any good things from those who live in integrity. We forget Psalm 34, where it said that those who fear God lack no good thing. The young lions lack. Simba gets put out, and he has to eat grubs, right? They lack. But those who fear God lack no good thing. We ignore God withholding bad as a sign of his favor and his love. I think this is why God commands Israel as the last commandment. Don't covet. Because when we do, we start to compare what God has given and we forget about how God has preserved. So what I would say to you, to us, is that, y'all, we have the freedom to stop comparing and start chronicling. My wife and I tormented ourselves for years, waiting for a child to come. 2008 is going to be the year. 2009 is going to be the year. 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. Not just the years, but the end of every month, constantly looking and holding the goodness of God as something that still has to be proven, waiting until we get that thing. And we didn't look backwards and think about all the ways that God had protected us and preserved us and cared for us. And I want you to know, pastors, as pastors, as those that are in charge of God's church, As those that have been commissioned to care for God's church, even if we don't see it in our own lives, the very nature of our profession or our job should remind us time and time again of a good God that preserves those that he loves. Think about the church. The church is an idea that never should have worked. It's a group of weak people, a group of sinners, only motivated to turn to Jesus, really, because they completely wrecked their lives. And they've embraced, as long as I have control of this wheel, I'm going to steer things out of control. 
So it's not sensibility that leads any one of us to Christ. It's not like our lives are great. And then we say, oh, I'd love to try this God thing on top of it all. Is that we steered our lives off of a cliff. And while we were begging for a second chance, we learned that we didn't need a second chance. We needed a Savior, and we were provided one. Then God gives these weak people an offensive message that pits them against people that may even find themselves on the same side of the fence politically. Not only does he give them an offensive message that attacks where everybody's trying to put their hope in, from the inception of the church, there's been persecution from the outside. So the only person in this movement that had any courage, they murdered him. And then Jesus had to leave the task in the hand of cowards. And then what they started to do with these guys is they started to persecute them. And not just from the outside. The church should have been impaled and stopped from the outside. If that wasn't enough, throughout these thousands of years, this group made up of former enemies and sinful people, it should have imploded from the inside. There's been racial tension in the church from the beginning. There's been different political views from the time that Jesus told Fox News watching Matthew the tax collector and CNN watching Simon the zealot to love one another just as he loved them and to give their lives for them. There's been high-profile leaders and pillars of the church that have abandoned the faith from the beginning. When persecution has started and there's been times of peace, there's been hypocrisy in things like the, the crusades, slavery. Prosperity theologians that prey on the poor. Politicians that prey on the poor in spirit. Enemies can't topple it. Insiders can't sabotage it. The church is still standing. Rome conquered the world. But they were no match for the creator of it. Half their force would have swallowed up anybody else, but their full force couldn't stop the church. God used fishermen to change the world. God has preserved his church, and he's done the same thing for you. And the question that I have is, when was the last time that you praised God for his perseverance? Do you tend to think of him like a policeman and your good deeds like the taxes that you pay? So, of course, he's obligated to do good to you. Do you realize what 2019 thus far could have been for you? The thing about being delivered from problems is that the farther that we get away from them, we forget just how bad things were, and we forget really who was the hero that brought us out of it. I think the best way to reflect and to praise God in the past is to ask yourself two things. The first one is this. What might have been? And why wasn't it so? If the answer to question number two is anything else, 
but God's gracious intervention, I think that you've missed it. Have you experienced tremendous loss this year? Loss that has been unimaginable. Did you have support? Any type of support. What might your life or marriage or ministry have been if you had any less support than the support that God had provided? I remember 2015 after my brother passed and I spent the next year in depression and I just didn't know what I was going to do. It was crazy because I was a part of a church planning cohort that I dropped out after the first meeting because I'm like, I just can't do this. Well, the first meeting, they brought a counselor in. And after I didn't show up that next week, he called me and he said, John, the Holy Spirit just told me that, hey, as often as you need time with me, uh, I'm going to give it to you for the next few years absolutely free of charge. And he was the counselor that I saw for the next year as I worked through depression. And that was all the gracious gift of God. And I constantly look back and say, man, Lord, if you hadn't been on my side, where would I have been? But I think the only reason why we can say that that bad things happen, but the worst hasn't, uh, is because the worst did happen, but it didn't happen to us. The worst happened to somebody else. God gave the worst to somebody who deserved the absolute best, and that was his son. And so what that means is that the worst will never happen. Look here at verse 6, right? It is all about what God allows. He says this, Blessed be the Lord who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. Look, the bad and sad news here is that although we have not been ripped to shred by their teeth, we have been in their teeth. Although we have not been trapped in the net, we have been in the net. The bad news, the sad news, uh, is that we don't live a conflict-free life. And God often comes what feels like, it, it, it feels like the last minute. It feels like the Lord of the Ring movies, that it's a trilogy. And what you find at the end of part one and part two is it doesn't end off on a high note. The end of those they're put in this place where it's, how in the world are they going to get out? And then it stops, and you had to wait for a year before you saw the resolution. And that's how it feels with God sometimes, right? How are we going to get out? What I love about this psalm and this text is this. God actually gave the worst to somebody who deserved nothing but the best. God has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth, but Jesus Christ his body was completely ripped apart by the teeth on the back of the end of a cat of nine nails. God has not allowed us to be caught in their trap. Jesus was caught in a trap that he saw coming from a mile away. And he willingly submitted to that pain, to that death, to the worst of it. 
he was caught in that net of sin and death. But when he died on the cross and rolled that stone away, he cut a hole in the net so that any one of us that finds ourselves feeling like we're caught in that saying that we can be reminded somebody made their way out and he's coming back to get all of us. So it's not just that the worst hasn't happened, the worst will never happen. That when the loss of a job may come, God provides miraculously that when the loss of a loved one comes in, we're reminded that the pain may not go away. Grief doesn't really have an expiration date, right? Years can go on, and it's just as fresh as it was the day that it took place. But we are reminded that we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. Even if the loss of our life takes place, and we breathe our last breath, it is not a tragedy. Our final breaths on this earth are like the last breaths that a scuba diver takes from the oxygen tank before he gets up. And after he gets out of the water, he discards the tank because he was never meant to keep that tank on in his true home. That was only meant to give him life while he was under the water doing an excursion, but once he's back home, he has no need for that, and that's the same thing that takes place with us. So I bring all of that up, and I just want to leave you with a few things in these two minutes that I have left. That the courage to move forward comes from the conviction to look backwards, and what that means for us is that as we chart into unknown territory, that I would just ask you to do this, yo. Set your gaze on the past before you set goals for the future. Set your gaze on the past before you set goals for the future. Before you talk about all the things that you want to do or the great things that you want to do for God, take some time and really look at the past. As you do that, I think it gives you the courage when conflict comes to where you remember the faithfulness of God and you remember that amnesia is a disorder. We were made to remember. The fact that we can remember God's faithfulness is a gift. I think it gives us clarity as we move on because although conflict is inevitable, it's all-inclusive and it's intense. Uh, conflict is something that is inconsequential when it comes to maintaining our joy. We can be sad and God can be good at the same time. Those truths are not mutually ex uh, exclusive. And the problems that come in our lives are logs that we throw on the fire of the faithfulness of God. When we don't have problems, that fire kind of wanes down. But the more that we have, the more that we throw, the more that we see the faithfulness of God at work. Three things I think that you can do. One, keep a journal. Really keep one. I know folks say it's optional. I just think it's helpful to be able to write about what has gone on and the ways that God has provided for you. One of the great gifts of my life is that I was challenged to do this early on. And a few months ago, I sat down with my journals from my freshman year of college and just recounted the faithfulness of God from that time for 15 years or so. And it was a 
faith builder. Two, uh, be creative in the way you remember the faithfulness of God. One of the ways that my parents did it uh, is that uh, they named us all very spiritual names from their hometown. So my mom, who had five miscarriages before she had her first child, decided to name my brother Ebu Bechuku, which means miracle of God. So every time she calls him by his first name, think of potty training, right? I'm potty training my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter right now. Think of the frustration that comes with that and to call them by their first name. And you're reminded of the faithfulness of God. Be creative in the way that you do that. And three, read history, um, not, just in term, or not just in light of the coincidences that you may see, but read it as if you're an actual Christian and if, as if there's somebody that's actually responsible for what went on. Hard work and diligence is great, but it's absolutely worthless if the providence of God isn't putting those things together. And there's something about reading history that reminds us that God is always and constantly at work. Friends, keep moving forward. Don't be so short-sighted as to believe that your problems are about you or mainly for you. I'm grateful to God that C.S. Lewis did not have a trouble-free life. Because if he did have a trouble-free life, he never would have wrote a grief observed. And I never would have been able to process how somebody else dealt with just such an unexpected death in a time where I didn't know how to. And so in one sense, I'm thankful to God for the trouble that he allowed to come but not to consume. And I want you to live in such a way where the people that you preach to and love and serve will do the same thing, that they're grateful that God allowed trouble to come your way, but it didn't consume you. The most important thing, friends, is not how tightly you hold on to our Savior, but how tightly he's held on to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, perseverance is fundamentally and primarily um, a gift that we receive from you. Uh, You preserve. We receive the benefits of that as we walk in faith and trust you, Father. Thank you that um, you are on our side, and we know that to be true. Because as enemies of you, as people that set ourselves against you, you gave your son to die for our sins so that you could bring us over to your side. And now having been brought over, you promised to care for us, to protect us, to keep us, help us to be confident in that, to look backwards. And as we look backwards, give us the courage to move forwards. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.